In this episode, I take a look at the diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder, then compare and contrast it to the polyvagal theory. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow trauma nerd, helping you understand and apply the science of connection to daily life. Welcome to episode 44 of the Polyvagal Podcast. As you may have noticed, it's just me. Mercedes is sick. So there's a solo episode here from Justin. Uh, I am uh, really happy to get into the DSM and polyvagal theory. I think it's well overdue. People have asked for it. Mercedes and I wanted to tackle it. She's out sick, like I said. Uh, otherwise, you know, she'd be here right along with me. I got three quick things for you before I keep going. Number one, if you're one of the super fans, stick around after the main topic. We've got an announcement about a major and free upcoming online conference. Number two, we also have an invitation for you. The first year of the Polyvagal Podcast is coming to a close. We'd love to know what's been the most helpful for you. Send us an audio clip and share how and if this resource has been a part of your life. We'd love to do like a first anniversary episode and feature these and kind of reflect on the first uh, year. A year. And number three, Put yourself first. We keep every episode as safe as you can, but just by the nature of the topics, you may experience some stuff come up, so take a break. If you need to, we're talking about depression. I don't think this is super triggering, but you know yourself better than I do, so please put yourself first. All right, one more real quick thing. Let's do a shutdown recap of the polyvagal theory. In episode four, I went way into depth into freeze and shutdown, but I didn't differentiate that shutdown and freeze are different things. We do have uh, an episode specifically about shutdown versus freeze. I'll link to it down below. But uh, we're talking about shutdown in particular. Shutdown is basically the body's preparing for death. This is like the last resort. We go from our safe social state. If we can't be safe, then we drop down into our flight energy and then fight and then into shutdown as last resort. We don't skip. It's basically a hierarchy from safe and social down to flight down to fight, and then into shutdown. But basically with shutdown, the body is preparing to die. It it has perceived that it cannot run away. It cannot fight. The last resort is to basically prepare for death. So it shuts down. When the body shuts down, it is immobilizing. It's numbing. And it's also dissociating in preparation for death with little pain. So it's kind of like this last resort thing, like I said. But Immobilization is also numbing and dissociation, which allow for the possibility of escaping should the opportunity arise. One example could be that a, let's say a prey is, has been tackled and um, beaten by a predator. So a lion is jumping on a gazelle, we'll say. And the gazelle goes into shutdown. It's not dead, but it will go into shutdown. It will go limp. It will go numb, and I assume that animals dissociate. But regardless, it, it'll, it'll shut down. It'll it'll immobilize. It'll go limp, and so it looks like it's dead. So what? While the lion is catching its breath, while the lion is sitting there catching its breath, another predator may come along and challenge that lion for the gazelle. While that's happening, the gazelle, the gazelle could pop up out of shutdown and potentially run away to safety, or the, it could pop up out. And, and escape, basically. Another example could be that a predator takes a prey back to their den where the like the, the predator cubs, like let's say lion cubs, are playing around with the prey 
who looks like it's dead. They're playing around with it, and and the prey may have an opportunity to, again, emerge from shutdown, use its sympathetic energy to uh, to escape to safety, basically. So shutdown, even though it looks like it's simply a last resort, it actually could be an opportunity to survive. And if you go numb, you're not going to feel the pain of what you just went through. And if you dissociate, you're not going to remember what you just went through, at least for a while, at least until you get to safety. So with dissociation, there's a very real like survival benefit to it. If I have to remember what I just went through, the chances of me escaping are probably lower. And if I have to feel the pain of everything that just happened, the chances of me getting to safety are probably a lot lower. It makes sense, right? Animals are very good at emerging from shutdown when it's time to and getting to safety. And they use this huge sympathetic energy of getting into the, from shutdown into their fight state, into their flight state, and then back to safety. They're really good at that. And animals that I think are basically like pure mindfulness, they're, they're very in touch with their body. Human beings, though, we get stuck in shutdown. So that's a very important piece of this. So we can get stuck in these dissociative or numb or uh, just very immobile kind of states day to day. That doesn't mean that we're always immobile, but there might be some numbness that we live with. There might be some lack of motivation or just feeling like we're dying. All these things can kind of get stuck with us and more. So animals, they got this. Humans, we kind of get stuck. So before we go into the depression in the DSM, a little disclaimer here. This information is not meant to, well, I'm not trying to diagnose you. That's not what I'm attempting to do here whatsoever. If you feel like you may be experiencing symptoms of depression, please consult with a mental health or medical professional. I am speaking in pretty much, I mean, I'm talking about the specific diagnostic criteria, but I'm not talking about you. I don't know you, all right? So this is not about you. <laughs> this is just in general what depression and shutdown can look like. So your specific situation, diagnosis, treatment, and medication are entirely between you and your provider, all right? So don't be diagnosing yourself. All right, the, di the DSM-5 outlines the following criterion to make a diagnosis of depression. The individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms during the same two-week period, and at least one of the symptoms should be either one, a depressed mood, or two, a loss of interest or pleasure. And so right off the bat, I think we can see how this would tie into shutdown. Depressed mood. Someone who's in shutdown doesn't have a whole lot of feelings of happiness or connection or joy. Remember, if you're in shutdown, you're preparing for death. So those things don't have a whole lot of place in that. Same thing with a loss of interest or pleasure. If you're preparing for death, your ability to feel excitement or interest or motivation or pleasure is probably not there. All right, so the first criteria in major depressive disorder is depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. And again, shutdown, the, the experience of shutdown is feeling down, okay, empty, numb, sad, lethargic, tired, like chronically, uh, lack of motivation, isolating yourself. I mean, does that not sound like a depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day? While stuck in shutdown, what I just described is entirely within the normal range of experience. Like this is what I hear from my clients. Luckily, I'm glad that I don't, I don't diagnose where I work, but they would easily fit the criteria for uh, major de depressive disorder a lot of times. 
but I get to look at them as, oh, this is shutdown. I can talk with them about that in their history and, and it, the pieces come together and we call it shutdown and we use that language versus major depressive disorder. When, when, in shutdown, everything slows down and there is very little, maybe even no energy. The will, the motivation, the energy that's required to do things is not there or is extremely diminished. And that might be going to school, doing the schoolwork, turning it in, uh, raising your hand if you don't understand something. Everything really slows down. I mean, and I mean that literally, we'll talk about that in a second, but literally everything in your body slows down and shuts down in a way. So criteria number two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. So again, I'm, and this we're going to keep going back to the same things over and over again, I think here, but basically, again, remember, you're preparing to die. Having pleasure in things is not a priority. From an evolutionary perspective, I don't think that makes sense. If you're about to die, I don't think you're going to be experiencing pleasure. I don't think at all, unless there's some sort of like hallucinogenic thing that happens. Maybe, I don't know. But I don't think that you're going to be experiencing pleasure. You're not going to be thinking about the movie you want to go see or the date that you're going to go on. You're not going to be thinking about playing with Nerf guns with your friends when you get home. If you're a kid, you know, there's the pleasure piece is just gone. Like you just, you're preparing to die. Pleasure, I think requires some level of a safe and social state. It requires the ability to imagine connection, at least imagine it to imagine excitement or to remember what that feels like you have to, I think you have to have some, at least a toe in your safe and social state in order to feel pleasure of, I would think any kind. And I think a lot of times we, we do high risk things that are pleasurable, but even then those high risk things just by themselves might just be flight by energy. But if you can, look forward to it. If you can experience it mindfully, if you can do it with friends to me, those, even those high risk things, there's pleasure there, but you have to have access to your safe and social state. Otherwise it's just flight fight energy. I don't think it's the same thing. And someone who's in shutdown does not have that flight fight energy. That is like off the table basically. And we're talking about very one dimensional aspect of shutdown. I know it's more complicated than that. And people can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but we're talking about the one-dimensional kind of aspect of it. All right, criterion three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. So when in shutdown, your metabolism has slowed down significantly. I believe that was something Dr. Porter said. And it makes sense. Your body is shutting down. So metabolizing is not a priority. Metabolism is the process of your body utilizing the energy you put into it or simply burning calories, I'll put it that way. And no, this is not my area of expertise. I did some research here and I'll link to all that um, down below. So take this with a grain of salt or read my sources here and, and judge for yourself as well, okay? But in shutdown, the body needs to conserve energy for potentially surviving, I think. Everything's shutting down, but you might survive. So I, th I think there's a benefit to, to, to sh kind of shutting down temporarily. And while you're shutting down, you don't need to take in 
new resources. You don't have to eat while you're shutting down because everything's shut down. So it's slowed down, right? So that makes sense to me that there's going to be a significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite. And you're like, like this is going to affect your appetite. If you don't feel hunger, if you're in a shutdown place and you don't feel the urge to eat, that's going to change your appetite, right? Again, in shutdown, the body needs to conserve energy for potentially surviving. And while in shutdown, you may be consuming less, which reinforces the body's natural tendency to reduce metabolism when less calories are coming in. So when you go into shutdown, that's going to, you're like, you're going to be potentially consuming less. You're going to be feeling hunger potentially less, right? Which is going to affect your appetite. But doing so reinforces the body's natural tendency to reduce the metabolism. I think, so it's almost like it reinforces the fact that when, when we have less coming in, the body already reduces the metabolism. So it just reinforces that it already does that when less calories are coming in. There's a really clear connection between major depressive disorder and things like obesity, uh, metabolic syndrome, which is like a cluster of conditions that occur together, increasing your risk of heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes. There's a clear connection between major depressive disorder and type 2 diabetes and with heart attack. Obesity greatly increases the risk of diabetes. And I have a link, again, there's a link to, to support that as well. The decrease in appetite piece here, I want to go back to this. This is important because there's a disconnect from the mind to the body. There's a decrease in appetite. You may not be aware that there are hunger cues happening. There's a disconnect there or the fact that your body is in more of a conservation mode. Maybe the hunger cues aren't there in the first place. Like that kind of makes sense, right? And again, my ability to go further into this is pretty limited. I'm a therapist, not a medical doctor or anything, but based on what my research was and just sort of wondering, that's kind of makes sense, right? There's also could be, I think, an increase in appetite. Does this mean an increase in hunger or an increase in eating? When it says, like with the criteria, one of them was a decrease in appetite. The other one could be an increase in appetite. The decrease in appetite makes sense to me. But the increase in appetite, I would wonder, does this mean that there's an increase in actual feelings of hunger or is there an increase in actual eating behavior? I'm not sure what they mean by appetite in the DSM here. I could see that overeating could be used as a way to cope, but that's not necessarily an increase in appetite or hunger, whatever that means. Overeating might just be an adaptation, like Porter says, an adaptation to our polyvagal state. So it might be a way when that sympathetic energy comes up that we use that energy to just sort of mindlessly eat, right? I wonder, honestly, if, if eating stimulates the ventral system, the ventral vagal safe and social state. Because when you eat, you're using the jaw, you're using the neck. These are the, the mastication muscles necessary for sucking and swallowing when you're an infant. And Porter's, I believe, mentioned this, that when we use these pieces, even though we don't feel safe and social, and then use them, but just using these might trigger that ventral vagal, that safe and social state. So it might be while chewing or while swallowing or while drinking. Just doing that may actually trigger our safe and social state and bring some relief to the shutdown or bring some relief to the uh, to whatever's going on, basically, the depression. This makes me wonder then is 
the increase in appetite, the increase in eating, is this potentially just a coping skill? Is this a way of utilizing maybe coming out of shutdown and into the fight state or the sympathetic flight fight state? Because remember, this is the latter. Shutdowns at the bottom. The first stop after that is your fight, flight, fight state, but fight and then flight. But when that when you come out of shutdown, there's a big surge of energy. There's a lot of irritation or maybe even anger. But energy, sympathetic energy comes along with that. And what I'm seeing is that when that happens, it's it's too much. My clients don't know what to do with it. So drug use could result. Uh, anger and aggression could result. But I think that eating, overeating could result as well. If you don't know what to do with that sympathetic energy, you're going to point it in the direction that has worked in the past or shown to be better than whatever you're feeling, even though it might not work and solve the problem. At least it's better than what you're feeling, if that makes sense. So cutting is not a great idea. I definitely encourage people not to do that. But cutting for one person might be better than whatever pain they're going through. And that might be their best attempt at self-regulation. Again, please don't cut. Get help if you are. But from the viewpoint of self-regulation, cutting, overeating, drug use, whatever else, these may be someone's best attempts at utilizing that surge of energy that comes or even the freeze energy that tries to discharge if it's too much. And I think a lot of times it is too much. The fourth criteria is a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement, which is observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. Someone who's in shutdown, a lot of times it just seems like they've lost their glow, their vibrancy, their excitement, their joy for life. Their prosody is gone, their smiles are gone, their eye contact is gone, they stare off into the distance. Basically, they just avoid eye contact and they just sort of stare uh, blankly. Even when you're with them, there's a disconnect. And I think this reflects criteria four here, which is a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement. Like that zest for life, the passion for life is just not there. And that's for a major depressive disorder. But I, for someone who's in shutdown, yeah, that's extremely accurate. Like there's a direct translation there. And number five is a fatigue or a loss of energy nearly every day. Same thing uh, as what I just described, that zest, that energy, that the ability to have a sympathetic energy and combine it with a safe and social state, which which results in fun and play and dancing. Like that's just not there anymore. Um, they're they're in a shutdown place. They're not in that playful place. Number six is feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Uh, Deb Dana says story follows state. The story of worthlessness matches the state, but also the feelings of worthlessness match the state. Shutdown and worthlessness, I think, really go hand in hand. I think shutdown and uh, loneliness go hand in hand, feeling lonely, feeling alone. Those go hand in hand. The story that you're going to have in your head, not just of worthlessness, but also of incompetence, being a, of being incapable, of being dumb, of being less than, there's going to be thoughts that reflect negatively back to the individual who's in shutdown. When you're in a fight state, your thoughts are about other people. There's a lot of blaming. There's a lot of assigning fault. 
when you're in a flight place, your thoughts, I think, are about other people, but it's more about fear. It's more about what someone's trying to do to you. And it's not an aggressive thing. It's more of a flight anxious thing. And the, the piece about inappropriate guilt stuck out to me as well for criterion number six here. Inappropriate guilt. It's guilt that doesn't belong. It doesn't match the situation. Now, if you do something wrong, you've, if you've harmed someone else, if you're in your safe and social state, you'll be able to feel, you will feel guilt. That's if you do something wrong, right? That's if you know, like, I, I messed up and you have that empathy, which only comes from being in a safe and social state. You'll have that empathy. You'll, you'll feel like I've harmed someone and I know it and I feel that and it's, it feels like guilt. It's, that's guilt. But with inappropriate guilt, that's where you feel guilt, even though you didn't do something wrong. But that feeling of guilt is very small, isn't it? It doesn't make you just want to like curl up. Almost, I think shame is, is similar as well. It's different though. But I think that feeling of guilt, of being small, of, of being wrong, um, I, th- I think that does go along with with shutdown. And also, it sounds like it's a piece of major depressive disorder. The number seven criteria is a diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. These are the skills that are available when you're in the safe and social state. Uh, concentration, decisiveness, problem solving, critical thinking. These are only available when you're in or have access to your safe and social state. If you're in a shutdown place, you, you lose access to those skills. Same thing like with flight and fight energy. Even though your decision making and problem solving might be compromised, you can be pretty decisive. Like You, you can. You can. I think you can make quick decisions. I don't that doesn't mean they're the best decisions. But I think you can make decisive decisions. Does that make sense? Decisive decisions. There's a sharpness there. There's like there's a decision. You just make it. And maybe even act on it. I think it can be there. But when it comes to shutdown, there's a lack of like self-belief in your ability to make decisions. There's a lack of motivation or lack of confidence to make sharp decisions, to make quick decisions or to problem solve, that kind of gets lost. And you're left with this foggy, gray, cloudy, numb, disconnected ability to think and remember and decide. And I think there's a direct connection here from shutdown to major depressive disorder. I think we're talking about the same things. And the last one, number eight, is recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation, without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. I'm going to save this for another time. I do think that this very much goes with shutdown, but also freeze. And I want to, and I want to spend more time planning and thinking about that. Uh, but this is one of those things that's on my mind, suicide and the political theory. Uh, but I, so I'm not going to tackle that right now. I, I, I would like to go into that another time though. There's a couple other things uh, that I'm not going to go into, but it has to be clinically significant distress or impairment. And yeah, that's shutdown, right? It, shutdown stuff is absolutely can be clinically significant. It cannot be the result of substance abuse or another medical condition. And yeah, shutdown is a biological, hierarchical reaction or response to life threat. It doesn't need substance abuse or a medical condition. It, it can exist on its own. There's also major depressive disorder with mixed features. 
and this allows for the presence of manic symptoms. I want to hold off on this as well. I feel like manic symptoms might have more to do with the freeze or coming out of freeze or attempting to come out of freeze than it does with shutdown. But freeze and shutdown are very, very similar in a lot of ways. And there's also a specifier of with anxious distress. And I kind of, I want to hold off on this one as well. This, this might be similar to freeze as well. But these are a few things that I want to tackle. So suicide, manic symptoms, anxious distress. I may, I should, I may tackle these in another episode. Okay, super fans, we've got an announcement here. There is a really, really... I think really, really amazing uh, conference, online conference coming February 3rd through 8th. It's called the Embodied Trauma Conference. It's online. It's got huge names. Peter Levine, you know how much I love Peter Levine. Dr. Porters, you know I love him. Irene Lyon, you know how much I love her. And many more. Like seriously, it's a ridiculous lineup, but those three uh, for me are, are are definitely worth the admission of free. So go to embodiedtrauma.com. This is uh, from Corinne Bell. She does the Bold as Love podcast. This is one of maybe very few podcasts that I really recommend that I that I would return to and listen to. There's a lot of mental health podcasts out there that just don't click with me, but this one, Bold as Love, she's she's good. I highly recommend it, but she is organizing this embodied trauma conference. So if it's at all up to the standards of the podcast, it should be a phenomenal online conference. This is actually an audio clip I got from her. She sent me, um, I, I, I shared the conference on my Instagram. There was a really good reaction to it, a lot of interest already. And she sent me this audio clip just thanking me and, and, and sharing her thoughts. But I wanted you to hear this. She gave me permission to share it. But I want you to hear this because she seems so into and concerned about her audience, um, trauma survivors. And I love... And it's like you, you can hear it in her voice. And that means so much to me. And you know that I don't do advertisements on the podcast, um, period. I don't do I've turned people away. I don't want to advertise for anybody, right? But she is giving value without asking for much in return at all, if anything. And she's organized this. She has an amazing pot. Like her, the value system of, of helping without asking for anything in return so aligns with the Polyvagal podcast that I'm happy to do this. And she's uh, basically the Polyvagal podcast is a sponsor of of the trauma conference as well. So it's just, I'm, I'm happy to help out. But I wanted you to hear her voice and hear how much love and excitement that she has for, for the conference and for her audience. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much. I really um, am so glad that we were able to collaborate here. I, I'm just overwhelmed with the response so far. It's been really, really heartening. You know, I feel like when we're looking around in the world, it's so easy to get caught up in and despair about all the things that are happening, but the healing vortex is so strong. And I feel like this is just evidence to that. People are are wanting to come together around these topics to um, engage in healing again and to engage in understanding their own body's intelligence and wisdom. And I, I'm so incredibly heartened to see the response so far. And I really just want to say thank you for your participation. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you've learned something new about the polyvagal theory and how to apply it to your life.